We've got an odd topic roundup with Brian and Ray today. Uh, no guests in studio, just be me and Ray talking politics, sports, and we're going to talk a little bit about family and education and things like that. Uh, definitely tune in. You don't want to miss out. You're being lied to more than any generation in the history of the world. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. We want to have good journalism that lasts. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Brian Dawson, host of the podcast and CEO of 1819 News. Joined by my wonderful co-host. If it was a woman, I would say lovely there, but you know, we want to keep things honest. Here. You can honest say news. lovely. I yeah, there you go. I'll take any comp. In my age, any compliments a good compliment. We'll take them all. Uh, yeah. uh, joined here by Ray Mellick, uh, the editor in chief here at 1819 News, and my co-host of the podcast. Ray, how are you? I feel a little lonely on this side of the table today. I, know. I mean, we've always have a guest, and I feel like I've got somebody whose lap I'm almost sitting in because yeah. uh, you don't really sense this watching it, but you're extremely close. So it's uh, I feel a little lonely over here today. A little lonely. I, I we should cue the lonely yeah. music. Uh, Roy Orbison there. Yeah, so. that's it. So, well, uh, despite not having uh, a guest to sit snugly up next to to Ray, uh, we still have a, a great episode for you. Um, we're going to be talking. Uh, we we're going to really do like a roundup, kind of not really a lightning round. It's not going to be that quick, but we're going to cover three topics that matter. Uh, we're going to be talking about politics, uh, the the current climate, the things that are going off with the runoff coming up. We're going to talk about sports, um, dive into world games, Auburn baseball, stuff like that. And then we want to talk about uh, family because that's also important. And we're going to go through and give each of these about 15 minutes. So uh, before we jump into that, though, we always want to tell you where to find us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Go there, uh, subscribe hit the bell so that you're getting a ding every time we publish a new podcast so you don't miss out on anything. Uh, leave a five-star review uh, and tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do. Uh, and also, most important, go to 1819news.com, subscribe. There's a big red button that says subscribe. Put your email address in there. We won't sell your information. It costs you nothing. Uh, and you will be signed up for our daily newsletter that goes out every single morning at 745, like a newspaper getting thrown on your front steps. Uh, all the news you need, all the opinions that matter, and all the podcasts we published coming straight to you in your inbox so that you don't miss out on anything. Good, yeah. And uh, the content's always there. I tell people it's free regardless. You don't have to subscribe to C1819news.com. But subscribing gets you that little extra boost every morning to tell you what's going on. Absolutely. And uh, at the end of the day, if we rely on social media, uh, you know, Zuckerberg and friends don't want our yeah. information getting to you and you getting to us. So that's how we run the old end around. Uh, is that for a sports term? The old end around on Zuckerberg is uh, by having this email that goes directly to you guys. And so um, and if you've already done that, what can you do to help tell other people yeah. to do that? Uh, because that is. Um, that's the one metric we're measuring above all else. We're getting incredible uh, engagement on social media. We've got, you know, tremendous traffic on the website. All those things matter. Uh, but to us, the most important really is that newsletter um, so that we're, we've got direct contact with our subscribers. So, And I was out, had the great chance to speak to the Moody Chamber of Commerce last week. or uh, my, It all runs together after a while. A great group of people, and I appreciate them having me out there to talk about it. And it's fun because about half the people were familiar with what we did. And we're still seven, eight months. So we're, you know, not even a year old yet. And the other half were learning. But afterwards, it was amazing how many people came up with, hey, while you were talking, I was subscribing. So uh, it's, that's all it takes. Hits that red button, put in your email, you're done. Yep. Make it super easy for you guys. Yeah. All right. So let the semi-lightning round Begin. I guess that's what we can call it. There's got to be a better thing we can term it. We'll come up with it, and we'll try and do these maybe once a month or so, uh, where we just yeah. come in and sum up the the goings on. You know, and and I think obviously the 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 political race sucking all the air out of the room right now is the Senate race, as yeah. it has all along. But now we're down to the Katie Britt, Mo Brooks. Uh, it's it's gloves are off. Uh, Donald Trump is now weighed back in, and 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 and. Uh, Given his endorsement to Katie Britt, Mo Brooks responds saying, hey, wait a minute. He asked me to ask for his endorsement, and then they gave it to Katie Britt. It's this sort of thing going on that uh, it, I think most of us are 
sort of over it. I just want to smash my face into broken glass and roll it around and then pass out from the blood loss. The more I, <laughs> you know, the more, the more of it's just one thing after another day after day. And it's like, why can't it be over? It might be a slight, slight exaggeration on that. But yeah. the point that I'm making is that it's just like, you know, it keeps going and it's like this weird middle school drama over who can get Trump's love. But I love what Joey Clark said in his oh, art, yeah. his column today. And he goes, actually, it looks more like, um, rather than, you know, Katie Britt having to kiss Donald Trump's ring, it was kind of the other way around because yeah. Trump has not been doing great on his endorsements. And so he's got to find a sure thing. And, and Katie Britt's the closest thing to a sure thing in any Senate race out there right now. Um, and so it was almost like she was doing him a favor by letting him letting endorse him, her. I know. It's really what it reads like. Yeah, it was a really interesting take by Joey, uh, smart guy. So if you're in Montgomery, yeah. you need to be tuning in to News and Views you on know, 93.1. And um, <laughs> yeah, Joey Clark writes for us on every Tuesday. So look for his column. But um, the state's interesting in that people here really do like Donald Trump. I, yeah. You know, I don't think there's any question the state voted for him. Not, you know, every time I say that, somebody emails me, well, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Okay, so you were one of the 20% of the popula voting population that didn't. By and large, we are a Trump state. But we are not so uh, Trumpites that we don't look at the local races, like the Senate race, and go, well, I appreciate what the former president has to say, but, you know, this is who I think is best for the state. And I, I think it's interesting how important it seems to be for uh, President Trump to feel like he's got influence in state-level elections. But as you pointed out, he's he's not doing great. He's not doing bad. I think he's probably batting 500, which is nice if you're in yeah. baseball. Uh, but that's not what really people appreciate about Donald Trump is not who he's endorsed. It's the stand that he takes, and and that's what people respect about him or, or like about him. And I think at a, at a state race, we know our state better than Donald Trump does. Yeah. And I think one of the, the most beautiful moments that's happened in Alabama politics for me watching, because the left has the the, the stereotype, the um, caricature of Alabamians is that we're blind Trump following cult members that can't do anything other than what Trump tells us to do. Right. And so we saw in uh, Coleman uh, in that Trump rally where he goes in and he starts talking about, um, you know, the botched pull out of Afghanistan and everyone's cheering and it sounds like Bryant-Denny Stadium and, you know, just screams loud, decibel, you know, off the charts. And he talks about inflation and high gas prices and how $5 a gallon gas was going to be coming. And, you know, he yeah. looks pretty prophetic there. Everybody screams. And he's like, and you guys really need to get that vaccine. And then he literally got booed and he took his booze. And then he said something else that was good, and they cheered. Yeah. And so that shows that it's like, no, it's not a blind cult following. It's like when Trump says things that are good, and he and, and he usually does more often than he's wrong, he's right, um, quite a bit so. Um, when he's right, we're behind him. But when he comes and says something that we disagree with, we're happy to, to boo him. And I think that shows up with the endorsement stuff as well. Uh, I said early on when Mo had the Trump endorsement, he was holding on to that Trump endorsement like a Willy Wonka ticket, you know, the gold ticket in Willy Wonka. And all he ever talked about was Trump, 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 Magamo, Trump, 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 Trump. And I kept saying, hey, you need to do the Glenn Youngkin where you're like, Mr. President, thank you so much for your endorsement. It means so much. Uh, you're an incredible president. You served our country in a way that no one has since Ronald Reagan. Um, thank you so much. And then go out and campaign. Yeah. But he didn't do that. He put all his eggs in that Trump basket, spiraled from 44 percent down to 14 percent. And when it got to 14%, Trump's like, hmm, pulls his endorsement. Then Mo doesn't have that to lean on anymore. And so then Mo starts campaigning again, and he shoots back up in the polls. So this whole thing has been uh, it's been crazy. And, yeah. and again, the reason, like I said, that I wanted to um, smash my face in a broken glass where I was going there is is just because of the, the kind of the whiplash of the back and forth of it. And then, you know, um, vying for, you know, Trump's, you know, uh, approval or the whole thing is just um, – it's it's gotten, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, Ray. Uh, well, I mean, it's exhausting. Just, yeah, it really has. And again, um, you may not like Mo Brooks, and I yeah. get that. Uh, his his personality can rub people the wrong way, I, and I, I think he would even acknowledge that. Yeah. We had him on the podcast early on, and he talked policy. That's his strength. He needs to get out there and let people know, and that's what he finally started doing is talking about policy. Uh, that's where he's got the advantage over Katie Britt. Now, that being said, Katie Britt is young and she's smart and she's got a, a well-oiled machine behind her and a lot of the good or bad, you can take it everyone, but a lot of the power structure is behind Katie Britt. 
And so people, it's really kind of come down to a personality contest of who people like better or feel like will serve their interests better. But um, I don't think I don't think Donald Trump's the answer for either one. I think it really I just agree. comes down to I, I, maybe it's misguided, but I really do have faith in people voting. And I think that, that in the end of the day, they will vote the way that they think is best for them. And I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Sadly, it looks like we're only going to get somewhere between 8 and 12% turnout in the runoff is what Merrill's predicting. And that will make a huge, uh, it's going to be a big impact. Yeah. And it's really sad. And and, and that brings to another, a whole other topic, this whole crossover voting issue. Um, and and I've, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm a little torn on this one because on the one hand, I understand it's a Republican primary, ideally for the Republicans of the state to pick the, the, the candidate they want. Yeah. But nothing stops people who are Democrats from voting in the Republican primary. You don't have to pre-register or say what you are. And quite frankly, one of the problems of being a one-party state, which is essentially what Alabama is, it forces Democrats to go, well, my guy's not going to get elected, so I need to go vote on the Republican side to have some sort of influence over who the best candidate I think will represent me will be. Now, if you're a hardcore Republican, you hate that. At the same time, though, what other choice do Democrats in the state have right now? So I, I, I understand crossover voting. I don't know that I think it's wrong, but I do understand the complaints that people have. You're my, getting ready to say yeah, something. Yeah, mine would be fix your party. Yeah. I mean, flat out. Like, if you're a Democrat well, yeah. and you don't have anybody, like, go find people. Um, encourage people to run. Do the hard work I'm that it takes you. to have it. And you know what? The whole state would benefit. I'm yeah. just being honest. Like, I know people are going to be like, what's, what, what's Brian saying? <clears throat> flat out. If, if you have unchecked power in one political party, whether it's Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter if it's Baltimore or Alabama, right? Like, so if you have a Republican supermajority with no Democrat party holding them accountable, and until we came along, no media holding them accountable, that is unchecked power. And unchecked power is never good for people. Right. It's never good for the people. And so just because unchecked power has an R by its name, it doesn't mean that it's better than when it has a D by its name. And so if we had, again, I don't... <laughs> I don't I don't want like a tremendous Democrat party. Right. But I think it, the, it, I think good competition will will force people to actually represent their constituency. Ideas will start flowing. Things will actually be better if there was a stronger Democrat system rather than the Democrats flowing over into the Republican. Right. And I agree. And I also think that a lot of the Democrats in the state are still pretty conservative. Yes. Uh, and I think if they embrace that and put a conservative Democrat. I'll give you an example. When Walt Maddox ran for governor a few years ago as the mayor of Tuscaloosa, did a great job. I know Walt Maddox. I like him. Uh, uh, but he embraced some more liberal ideas to be a Democratic candidate that a lot of people just couldn't go for. If he'd run as a Republican and left the, the you know some of the, the liberal ideas aside, I think he would have had a really good shot at winning that race because he's done a great job as mayor of Tuscaloosa. I think it, my point is, if the Democratic Party would just put some people up there that is they know would appeal to a lot of Alabamians, then you've got a race. The problem you have now, as you said, is we got one party, the dominant party, and it's almost like two parties within the Republican Party. There's so much infighting within the Alabama GOP that they almost can't get themselves together to really be unified on what they're after. Yeah, and and and, and let me see if I can describe this, and you can correct me because you've been in Alabama longer. And, and really, it's not just Alabama, but what's happened in the Republican Party, you used to have in Alabama, blue dog Democrats, Dixiecrats, whatever you want to call them. And that was the working class. Those were the people that went out and worked. OK, and then you had big business and that was the Republican Party. Well, <clears throat> I don't know if it was because the Democrat Party kept continuing to go left that they abandoned that working class. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it, it kind of became the, the party of the quote unquote oppressed. And the working class kind of found itself abandoned. So then they joined mm -hmm. the Republican Party. And so now... Within the Republican Party, you still have that same dichotomy that you used to have in Republican right. and Democrat. And so you have hardworking grassroots conservatives that are the kind of the salt of the earth, people that make the state hum. Uh, and then you have your big corporations that are all in the same party. And and so there's there is this fight. And and you see, and and to me, when you look at Alabama's um, you know, I, I say this all the time. The citizens of Alabama, we are the most conservative, hardworking, God-fearing, amazing people in the country. But big corporate interests hold so much sway over our party, and not necessarily like our party like the ALGOP, but I mean just Republican politics in the state, um, that we end up having, um, we have a lot of representation in Montgomery that's representing corporate interests rather than people interests. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, I hope I broke that down. Yeah, 
and I think that the point, and I, I really would love to explore this one day with maybe a historian or something, but yeah. I think you, we have to remember uh, Richard Shelby was a Democrat. Kay Ivey. Became a Republican because the party moved away from his some of his bigger issue values, but he still had that old Southern Democrat mentality. So as a result, he brought a lot of money back to the state of Alabama. One of the reasons our federal debt is so high is people like Richard Shelby. Now, yeah. it was good for us, but it was bad for the country. And, and I thought of it, if you remember uh, uh, Huey Long, former governor of Louisiana, uh, they found out he'd been stealing money. And his great line was, yeah, I stole, but I stole for you. You know, Well, Richard Shelby, yeah, we borrowed, but I borrowed for you. I mean, it's the same kind of a principle. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you've got that sort of a mentality, particularly with an older generation of new Republicans who yeah. used to be Democrats, who still sort of think that way. And I think it's it's going to take a real change of sort of the people that grew up with the Republican ideology of small government, reducing the size of government, less government interference, less reliance on government. Uh, and we're going to get that whether we like it or not, because whether it's Katie Britt or Mo Brooks, they're going to go in with very little influence in the Senate from the way they rank uh, the members. They will come in as Mr. 100 or Mr. 99, and you just don't get a lot of power there. So we're really going to hit this period in Alabama for a while where we're not going to get the appropriations that Richard Shelby has been bringing back here. And I'm not sure. I mean, I loved it. It's good for the state, but it's not best for the country. Yeah. I would say that's probably the biggest difference between the two candidates is, you know, if if you were to put Mo on the appropriations committee versus if you put Katie, you know, yeah. what, what would they be voting for? Other than that, I don't think you're going to see that much of a difference um, in their voting. And so... Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I know we want to, we got to jump. We, we said we're going to spend 15 minutes and I know we've probably gone over our 15 minute. We're right at, right at it. Um, the other part is the secretary of state. Uh, you've got Jim Ziegler and Wes Allen. And I do think that everybody's focused on election integrity. I do think election integrity is very important. And the next secretary of state will, that will be a big part of what he does, but it's a really important office for a lot of other reasons. If you're a business person, you're wanting a license. If you're a family trying to adopt, particularly international yeah. adoptions, there's a lot more to the Secretary of State than just election integrity. And I think it's a race that people really should be paying attention to. Yeah. And I think um, both candidates, um, I think, you know, are fairly, fairly good. I mean, I, I know um, Jim Ziegler has been around. He's got a t tremendous name ID from just being around politics for 40 years. Um, that bothers some people that he's been around politics yeah. for 40 years, but he's also been a thorn in the establishment side with filing ethics complaints and things yeah. like that. And so he sees a lot of what's wrong with Montgomery and has always been kind of pushing back against the things that are wrong with Montgomery. So I think he brings uh, tremendous experience in having seen how Montgomery politics can not go well. Um, and will hopefully have, you know, if, if he gets elected, have the spine to correct some of that stuff or at least as much as he can in that secretary of state position. Uh, Wes Allen, very likable guy. Um, and you know, I think he played Alabama football, very well spoken, good looking, you know, um, and he, I mean, he seems like a great guy. Uh, I think in my questions, and again, this may not matter to people listening, but in my questions, Jim Ziegler is more for, um, you know, forensic audit of the 2020 election and let's look inside the machine and make sure it's not connected to the internet. And again, this is about the only difference in them that I've that I've been able to to find. And then Wes Allen is like, no, we don't need to do a forensic audit. We don't need to open up the machines. I could be wrong on the forensic audit stuff, but for sure, he said he doesn't want to open up the machines. And so that's a that's one of the big differences between the two. But as far as Eric, um, the uh, you know electronic the, recording information information and yeah. and both of them actually Wes Allen was the one that has said we will be out of Eric yeah Jim Ziegler actually said well I want to study it to see where their money's coming from a little further so it's it, in some ways they kind yeah. of flip-flop on these issues yep. uh Jim is a guy as you said for one thing Jim doesn't have ambition for a higher office as he yeah. said in, in a recent forum they said you know do you want to use this as a stepping stone he said and I may be wrong, but he's like, he's, I'm like 75 years old. The next yeah. step for me is heaven, you yeah. know? And so you kind of like the idea that he'd be walking in there with no ambition. It'd be hard to say Wes Allen doesn't have further ambitions. He's Absolutely. still a young guy. Yeah. But at the same time, he's been a probate judge, which is really involved in elections. He is also, as he says, voted with the legislature for audits of elections, maybe not uh, to the extent that, that some people would like, but at least checking into it. So, it, again, it kind of comes down to there was a great line where 
uh, Jim looked said basically, Wes Allen is part of the establishment. I've spent my life in Montgomery fighting the establishment, which is interesting because he's been in Montgomery for so yeah. long. Very interesting <clears throat> race between two different people uh, with with uh, kind of long term views of of what you want out of that office and you know uh, and and where that may go. But I think it really is an, a, a race that's more important and and people realize it. The election made people aware of that. But I do think it's one that deserves a little more attention maybe than what people are giving it. Yeah. And then other big statewide is you have Auditor and Public Service Commission Auditor. You have Stan Cook and Andrew Sorrell. PSC Place One, I think, is between Brent Woodall and... McCollum? Oh, no, no, McCollum in... is is with Beaker. That's right. And so... That's terrible. We should have, You should have looked yeah, at it before I know, came I in should, here. But I, it's, I knew it, and then now I don't. Oh, yeah. it's uh, Jeremy Oden. Yeah, Jeremy Gun Oden. Doten, Jeremy Oden. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Those are the worst commercials ever. But um, so, yeah, um, do your due diligence there. Um, we're not uber familiar with them to the point where we can go on and on like we can about Mo Brooks and Katie Britt or even, you know, like we did with Wes Allen and those guys. Um, and, you know, the Public Service Commission is an interesting position in and of itself. It obviously sways a ton of power. There's three people who are essentially regulating monopolies. Um, so and here, here's one more sort of thing. And we're going to cut this off. But Fifth District. Huntsville, North Alabama, they've got to elect Mo Brooks' replacement. There should be a lot of interest up there. Now, they'll be also voting in the Senate race. Yeah. So let's not forget the bigger picture of turnout it will also play in these other races. These are not isolated voting incidences. So yeah. uh, although Mo didn't beat Katie Britt by that much in North Alabama, you've got Mike Durant out of the picture now. It will be interesting to see if a if a larger-than-normal turnout or larger-than-expected turnout in Huntsville or North Alabama works in Mo Brooks' favor. It could still be a really interesting race is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's definitely not over. I mean, there's that part of you, like, for instance, I, I, I was at a, an event where Mo Brooks was the evening of him losing the Trump endorsement. And I thought I was going to a funeral. Turned out it was a rebirth. Yeah. Don't know. Right. And right now it looks like Katie's going to win in a landslide, but it's like, just no one knows what's going to happen. Um, they were, we were shocked that she was 45%, whatever she was yeah. on the primary night. Cause nobody saw yeah, that. She was pulling at like 33. Yeah. Right. So, um, but either way, you know, I'm, I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah. Uh, I'll just be dead dog honest with you. I'm ready for it to be over. Um, and we can like we're going to we do get now. So many again, we get so many calls from people with hot tips over, yeah. you know, Mo Brooks kicked a dog or Katie Britt stole a car hubcap or yeah. you know whatever it is, and and most of them are, are about that silly. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm I'm sort of ready for all these big hot news tips that never pan yeah. out to sort of stop. Yeah, and so we will be moving on past politics here soon, like we're going to do right now. Yeah. <laughs> let's do moving Something into our next. Fun. Yes, yeah. moving into our next one. <clears throat> Talking about sports and what's going on, uh, while we talk about sports, before we jump into some of the things we've got ironed out, you want to talk about your uh, your your becoming a legend and being honored as a legend? Oh, well, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, Alabama Sports Writers Association 50th year anniversary of the organization honored its legends of Alabama sports writing Sunday night uh, in a banquet here. I was one of those 50, uh, but it was really cool to, to be around people like Clyde Bolton and Wayne Martin and, and, and guys that I looked up to when I was came, first came to the state. And then my peers, Paul Feinbaum and I came in about the same time and Paul flew back from Charlotte where he works for ESPN and SEC network and, and was there. He was honored. Reuben Grant, one of my best friends in the entire world. Uh, unfortunately, the only black uh, legend, uh, Kathy Lumpkin, who is Bill Lumpkin's daughter. Bill was a legend. She was the only female honored. And that does say something about but it was also exciting to see there were women, there were other minorities now in the organization, so it is improving. But, yes, it was neat to see these guys to just kind of reunion, be a reunion with a lot of folks that I kind of had known for years and uh, a fun time. And am I a legend? I don't know. but I have He's been a legend, a, everybody. Yeah, in my own mind. That's anyway. right, in yeah. mine too. <laughs> uh, and also Paul Feinbaum is a regular reader of 1890 News, so all of you great folks are in good <laughs> yeah. company. So I, I was, Yeah, I was flattering to talk to Paul, and he went, no, I've, you know, we sort of keep up uh, a little bit. He said, but I've read the things you've posted and it's kind of got me reading 1819. And he said, yeah, I like the job you're doing there. So that was nice to hear. Yeah. Nice things from Paul Feinbaum. Yeah. That people wish they could get He's that. a good guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. Well, the, 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 I don't know. But baseball, is, that's where we want to well, go. No, we're going to go world games first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And because base anyway. So yeah. So before we get to baseball, obviously there's big baseball news in Alabama. 
Um, but the World Games. So the World Games 2022 is coming up. What are the World Games, Ray? <laughs> yeah, it's made up of a bunch of sports that aren't Olympic sports, although there are some that are Olympic sports. But you're going to get like tug of war and and remote plane racing and and sumo wrestling and uh, just a variety of interesting sports at a different level. It's it's you know when they announced this, they said, oh, in the World Games in Brazil, they had seven hundred fifty thousand people come into that game, so we got to get ready for that in Birmingham. I don't think we could handle 750,000 people. I don't think we will, but it's good for the city. I mean, it, it is, a, you know, it will bring a lot of visitors here. They will spend a lot of money and uh, there will be a little bit of, of, of international spotlight, so to speak, because there will be teams coming from all over the world to participate in these games. And they're fixing those potholes, man. I, I tell you, uh, <laughs> here's what protective stadium has done. Uh, people who've grown up here and been here a long time as I have know that, you know, we, we, the Civic Center was there. It was a, a great thing when it was built. But the area around it kind of deteriorated. They came in and put Uptown, a bunch of restaurants, some really good hotels. Top Golf came in. The crown jewel is Protective Life, and that was really built for UAB football. But the city also needed a new venue. Legion Field was old, again, in a neighborhood that, right or wrong, people didn't necessarily like to go to. Uh, and I think we see that now with the USFL uh Attendance hadn't been great, but it's been good national exposure with a lot of great ads. Garth Brooks concert, uh, World Games coming. We wouldn't have that without Protective Stadium being there, and that's all kind of a collaboration between the business community, UAB, and the the city and the state. And it really has turned. Uh, former Mayor William Bell used to say, you know, downtown Birmingham is the living room. People come to visit your house; they go to the living room first, and if they like it, then they'll they'll visit other parts. And I think it's given Birmingham a really good living room for people to come here and visit and see the downtown, uptown area, Regents Park, all that, and then begin to explore the other neighborhoods. As I've talked to some of the folks from the USFL, some of the coaches and administrators have all said, hey, Birmingham's got great little community, Avondale or, or, or Lakeview or Cahaba Heights or you know wherever other parts of town they're going to, and really, really discovering the, the Hoover area out there, particularly the, 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 how it's expanding. It's really, William Bell was right. That living room has turned into people visiting the other parts of the house and liking what they're seeing. Yeah. I think a lot of the investment that's also come in for the World Games, even after Protective Life Stadium, there's been a lot of money that's flowed into the city and everything getting yep. ready for the World Games and promoting it. Um, is they want the rest of the world to see that Alabama in 2022 is not Alabama from 1960 because the last time Alabama was on an international stage was civil rights, you know, state troopers, you know, beating up, you know, people still think people. of that too yeah, many well, uh, and that's fire a, hoses and, do and fire and hoses dogs. and dogs yeah. and blown up churches with kids in it. Yeah. And, and so this is an opportunity, you know, a lot of people are looking at it as an opportunity to kind of rebrand Birmingham and rebrand Alabama um, to, you know, the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And so I think that's good because I do want people to look at Alabama and see what an incredible place it is. Birmingham, such an economic powerhouse, Huntsville, Mobile. I mean, it's just a really incredible state, wonderful people. But there's also an occupational hazard there that, you know, some of these Yankees are going to start moving there like me. Like you. I was yeah, going to say. Yeah. One of them Yankees. We see what's happened with you moving yeah, I know. Here. It's terrible. Uh, but it is. And, and again, in spite of those dire warnings that we heard from too much of the media over the census, we gained in population. We were told we were going to lose one, maybe two seats. We didn't. We were never in danger. And I think Alabama's become an attractive place that people are moving to. And even, you know, the thing you always hear is, oh, my kids grow up and they just want to leave. Well, kids generally, wherever you are, they want to get up and go somewhere else a lot of times. But uh, a lot of our kids are not leaving. They do like living here. They like the quality of life and they're finding good jobs here. And I think it's not this giant exodus of young people that some people would have us believe is taking place. Some of that's natural. I mean, a lot of people want to go to Atlanta or Nashville and I get that, yeah. but a lot of them then start having kids. They want to come back to Alabama and raise the kids the way they were raised. <clears throat> that's exactly right. Um, well, so, um, uh, you know, so one of the other things too, and you, you kind of talked about it, but you think about the fact that we had, uh, a completely sold out Garth Brooks concert, 45,000 people. It was a huge event, you know, standing room only, lights out concert. This doesn't happen without Protective Life Stadium being right. built, right? And so these are the type of things that are going to attract, um, you know, make us, because I know there's probably, and I don't know if we have time to go over it, but, you know, 
and, and I may just be scratching the surface on this, the whole Delta thing that happened. So like Delta was looking for a place where they wanted to put their headquarters. Yeah. It was a fight between Back Birmingham, in like 50s, yeah, early yeah, 60s Birmingham story, and Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta got it. And then Atlanta turns into Atlanta. Birmingham turns into Birmingham. And there's yeah. always this like little brother syndrome that's going on. And, um, you know, I think we're starting to see though, that Birmingham is growing into its own, um, yeah. mold and protective life stadium, I think has really helped. And, you know, um, the other really cool thing I'm going to back up to Protective Stadium again, that Garth Brooks said the the sound quality was good enough. He wanted to record his concert. That never would have happened at the Civic Center. It certainly wouldn't have happened at Legion Field. Yeah, people need to understand. So now big acts like Garth Brooks go, "Hey, the sound's good. We don't mind coming to Protective Stadium." Uh, I know that's always a problem as bands would go. If I go into the arena, the Civic Center, it echoes the sounds bad. We don't sound good as a band. We don't really want to play there. So it was very encouraging to hear the excitement of Garth Brooks wanting to actually do a live recording. And he's the best there is. He it really it, is. You know, live, in, live entertainment, in, yeah. it doesn't get any better. And so you've got the biggest show in town saying that he wants to record his stuff here because the sound is so good. That means that we're going to be able to line up headliners, you know, all day long. And now. then, you know, again, the restaurants, and, and I saw where the, the, the chef at, at uh, the um, – Automatic uh, uh, Bar and Oyster, Oyster House, got the James Beard Award. So, again, yeah. another really top chef, a growing food culture that wouldn't happen again. All these things are interrelated. People yeah. are starting to see, well, this area is good. That's a business opportunity. So it's it's really kind of a cool time to be in the Birmingham area, Central Island, but it, but also Mobile. It's also oh, Huntsville man. with the growth. Huntsville. Huntsville is unbelievable. And maybe that's what we can do is maybe this next month we'll see if we can get Mayor Stimson on, and then after that we'll get Mayor Battle on. Sure. And then Brag talk about, about your city. Yeah, because that's the thing is like, you yeah, know, Huntsville I, was just voted like the top place to live or yeah. something. Yeah, I mean, just uh, it's amazing for people that want to put down this state and even some of us that live here. We've yeah. got a, too much of people that live here with a voice that want to put down Alabama and talk about how we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, you know, gosh darn it, people don't like us. Yeah. Actually, we are good enough, and we are smart enough, and people uh, do like us, yes. and it's kind of, we need to celebrate that. I completely agree. Well, let's, uh, I think that's actually a really good idea, uh, having those other guys. That yeah. happened right here. You guys got to watch <laughs> that idea pop in my head. Because I, I, I do, it's one of the things that, I don't even live in Birmingham, but there's a ton of Birmingham centricity to a lot of the stuff we do because Birmingham is the epicenter yeah. of the state. Yes, Huntsville is amazing. Mobile is amazing. amazing. There's good things going on, you know, in the Wiregrass and up in the other, you know, different corners and areas uh, of the state. But, you know. Birmingham is the economic driver. Me yeah. and a half people, largest metropolitan area by far, even yeah. though the city of Huntsville is now bigger than Birmingham and Montgomery, I think is getting close or Mobile, one of the two, but the metropolitan area is still by and large, the economic engine for the state. So it is important. Yep. And in Birmingham, they love the governor. Yeah. <laughs> Just, anyway. uh, that's good. All right. We're going to go to, let me, yeah, I, yeah. I got to talk about Auburn baseball. That's where I was going. I love college baseball. That's where I was going. Uh, I love playoff baseball in general, the regular season. I got to admit, I, I love to go to games and my son's played and it is something, you know, we, we still talk and enjoy watching. But, boy, the college world, the, the, the playoffs to the College World Series in Omaha, the regionals, have been really exciting baseball. Auburn, four SEC teams. Auburn's now been twice in the last three years, I think. They were picked to be last this year. So this is a great turnaround for Auburn. And an exciting win over an Oregon team that was supposed to just be a dominant team. Uh, and I love Omaha. I love the College World Series. I've gotten to cover it several times. It's just really it's really something people that love baseball need to go to. You need to just take a week out, take your camper, uh, park in, you know, they've got their own little city that used to be dominated by LSU and LSU was there all the time. And the people of Omaha are great. And it's, it's, if you love college baseball, it's, there's nothing better than Omaha. Yeah. I grew up, um, you know, when I was loved playing baseball as a kid. And I remember every single summer sitting down in front of the TV and watching every single game of the college world series that would air and just, um, my dad is, um, my dad's from Mississippi, but grew up in West Monroe, Louisiana for his entire childhood and adult life. And, uh, you know, so I was a, uh, an LSU fan by proxy and, and, and it was really with baseball, with football. I didn't really have a team growing up in college. Uh, I was a Broncos fan, uh, and pros, but LSU was my college baseball team. And, sure. and in the nineties, man, watching those guys, it was just I've never seen anything else like it. I mean, I guess it would be the equivalent of what Alabama is to college football. Yeah. LSU was to college baseball. And, and But it wasn't just them. I mean, just watching, you know, those aluminum bats and these just unbelievably talented kids and 
man, it's so much more fun than watching professional baseball. Yeah. Um, and it almost goes back to the old Earl Weaver philosophy, Earl Weaver, the legendary baseball manager, something with the Orioles. While everybody's doing all this stuff, he went, hey, the game's simple. You get a walk, you get a single, you get a three-run homer. That's what LSU was about yeah. in the 90s. And Alabama, when they had a really good run there, too, uh, as well in the, in the late 90s. Um, but the SEC baseball, I think, again, just like football, best in the country. Every year since 2014, there's been at least three of the eight teams in Omaha have been the SEC. This year, it's four. Unfortunately, three of them are in the same bracket with Stanford, but so you're going to have to eliminate each other, Texas A&M, the lone team on the other side. But it's it's just really fun, and people really get into it. And, and this is the culture change. You've not been to Omaha, but uh, again, in the 90s, uh, Southern teams went to Omaha and Nebraska so often that restaurants began to advertise on their marquees or signs in the windows, we serve sweet tea. Because they knew everybody from the South coming going, hey, man, you know what do you want to drink? I want sweet tea. Yeah. We don't have sweet tea in Nebraska. Well, yeah. they do now. They do now. At <laughs> and least, they do now at, because at least so many June. Southern fans are showing up, at, yeah, for this month anyway, yeah. and they want their sweet tea, whatever restaurant they're in. So we have taken sweet tea to uh, to other reaches, and it's they they love it. Yeah. And uh, I did go to when they had the regionals in Wichita, uh, Wichita State. I grew up in Wichita, Derby, Kansas. The Shockers. Uh, yeah, sure. the Shockers, watching Shockers baseball and uh, they were always really good. They would occasionally make it to Omaha. Sure. Um, so they were they were fun to watch. But LSU was always my my team. And then this year, I took my son and actually my whole family um, to the SEC tournament. I had no idea. Oh, it's, I'm thinking yeah. I'm just going to this like college baseball tournament or whatever. And you go there at the Hoover Met, and and it's like it took us 30 minutes to find a parking spot, <laughs> and it's like miles and miles of cars and cars. And yeah. I'm like, holy cow! I had no clue. Uh, and you get in there, and they have all this stuff for the kids to do, and there's like you know literally like a gymnasium filled with all kinds of like bouncy yeah. castles and everything, and um, just a ton of fun. RV park, people yeah. show up for the whole week or week and a half or the week in the SEC in Omaha, a week and a half. Park there, great community. Go out and spend their money, which the city of yeah. Hoover loves. And again, they've talked about moving that, but I think the SEC is loyal to Hoover, and Hoover is certainly loyal to the SEC. And it's just become, it's centrally located. Everybody can get to Birmingham and to Hoover for this yeah. event. Uh, and it's just, it's tremendous. And again, they're like college football fans. I mean, you sit there and you watch the game, and it's a level of enthusiasm you don't see anywhere else except maybe college football yeah. or college basketball. And college baseball is that way. And it, it really is fun. And again, um, baseball is such a unique game. And I know it, you know it's too long. I get it. There's too much time between plays. But what other sport do you actually have time to sit there? You can keep a detailed scorebook. Every pitch, I can then turn to you and say, hey, wow, man, he needs to do a throw change up here. Or, boy, he just needs to come with a fa- Okay, now it's time again. So you've got time yeah. to talk about everything that happens yeah. and then watch it. And if you don't want to watch it, you sit there and have your drink of choice, get a hot dog. Yeah. I mean, I grew up sitting in the zip center. Line. Yeah. I grew <laughs> up in center field at old Fulton County Stadium of Atlanta Braves when the Braves were horrible. But we'd talk to the bullpen guys from the visiting team and, you know, back and forth. It's just it's just a great social atmosphere that I really do think uh, uh, makes it special. I hate that so many young people uh, seem to be moving away from baseball, lacrosse and soccer sort of become the big thing. But, uh, I, you know, Again, I'm I'm an unabashed playoff baseball fan. Regular season, yeah. I love to go just to sit and talk. But now it's fun to watch yeah. when every at bat matters. It's like basketball. Like yeah. I could care less Same until March thing. Madness. You're right. You know. So yeah. there's something about it. Well, uh, on that note, it, it looks like I may be going to Omaha in my future potentially. <laughs> right. um, so my son, I'll give him a shout out. Uh, hit three home runs. I it was consecutive at bats, or I think they may have walked him in between there. Rightfully so. So he hit two home runs, then he got walked, and then they pitched to him again, and he hit a home run. Almost the Reggie Jackson yeah. World Series deal. Yeah. yeah. I'm, and, you know, he's 12 years old, plays for the Tallahassee Tigers, and, man, he crushed it. And then I will give uh, Peyton credit, too. He came up, and they literally put him in to hit home runs, and he came in there like Babe Ruth and crushed one, too. Um, it's it's tournament season now. Yeah. It's all-stars, and all this stuff will be going to state championship. Or not state championship, but state tournament uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, coming up, so had some fun uh, with that, um, and and it's kind of the same thing. Like regular season, it's like eh, until it gets an all stars, you know, yeah. the things really heat up and it's fun. You know, I, I had two sons, coached them all the way through, even through high school. Uh, got to help out uh, one year uh, with with coaching, 
And uh, it's just something really fun about being there, being involved with your kids, other kids, other young people out there. Uh, and and you spend so much of your time for, for us from coach pitch, T-ball, all the way up to their senior year of high school. And then when it's over and you always think, oh, man, you know, I'll be so glad to have my spring and summer back. And then it's over and you go, man, I miss going to the ball, ball yeah. field. You know, you, you miss the friendships and the relationships. There are people um, that my kids played youth league baseball with uh, that I'll run into today. And it's just like, we, you know, it's 20 years later in some cases, 15 years later. And it's like you never miss a beat. You remember those days and you bond and uh, it, it really was fun. Yeah. And I mean, I remember my, uh, not my high school, like school coach. It was our summer league coach. He was my coach from seventh grade through 12th grade was, you know, American Legion, Babe Ruth, you know, like he was my mm -hmm. coach and he had such a huge impact on my life too. You know, he was just such a, you know, tremendous yeah. uh, influence and, in, and, in, and, in, in not just my life, but so many, uh, young men, um, you know, because of him deciding to do that year after year and just, uh, loving it. And we had a, had a blast doing that. So, yeah, it, it's a neat way to bond. And even, you know, moms, when my kids were little, we lived in a, uh, uh, Eastern area of Birmingham. We played at Huffman ball field. Uh, we were one of, I think two white families there. And I only say that because it was an interesting dynamic. My father, who was living with us at the time of a different generation, you know, Hey, I'm a little nervous about this. By the time it was over, he was grandpa to everybody in the park. And and again, it was just really a wonderful parent-led baseball field that produced a lot of really good players. I say this because it's interesting. This is a before-your-time. Most of these things are. But I remember when American Idol was was still new, Ruben Studdard, who was from Birmingham, was in the finals. I remember we were watching a baseball game, but every parent had their cell phones out to vote for Ruben. You know, they're all like – now, you know, because they tell you yeah. when the when the polls are open. And I remember sitting there, the kids are playing baseball, but everybody in the stands got their cell phones to vote for Ruben Studdard for American Idol. It's yeah. just a community type it thing is. that bonds people that would never normally maybe never even get together. You wouldn't socialize. You don't go to church with them. Maybe you don't work with them, but it brings people together and creates a bond that that crosses economic, racial, whatever lines Absolutely. there may be. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool thing. It's a great thing. I uh, I used to coach football. Uh, youth football, and then now I have so many kids. I basically have a football team of my own that takes yeah, up my time. So I don't do as much. And seven so, with one more coming. No, six, six with, six with seven on the way. September okay. we'll have our seventh. Huh. Court, you know, so it's a good time. There's a lot of lines there. You've heard them all. I'm not going to yeah, use them anymore. That's right. You know what you're doing. That's right. So, um, so with that, we'll transition into our our third topic. Uh, you know, one of the things that we really want to do. We want, we want to make sure that we're bringing our audience news information, uh, as well as opinions and things like that. But talking about some of the, you know, the last two podcasts we've have have really hit at the core of societal and cultural disintegration that stems from, you know, the family breakdown, yeah. breakdown of the nuclear family. Um, and so, you know, we always like to, to maybe talk about what other outlets wouldn't talk about. And so I think family, um, is something that we're really going to have to, um, as, as a people, as a people of Alabama, uh, really focus on on getting this back, back to where it needs to be. Because if we don't, things are going to continue to kind of slip into the chaos that we're seeing right now. You know, it, it is. And so much, you, you can say whatever you want, but it, I think it's study after study shows so much of societal breakdown reflects the breakdown of families. Uh, we've had some really amazing guests, and I encourage people to go back and look at the last couple of podcasts that we've done that really deal with this issue. And we've gotten a lot of really good feedback off of it. But if, if the family is strong and the family's intact, your kids have a better odds at a successful future uh, and having stable families of their own. And, and I, th I think part of that too is that we as parents, and particularly we as fathers, because again, fatherlessness, the father not being in the home is again, a, a major crisis that people recognize. Yeah. Uh, but we've got to figure out ways to fix this and make sure it doesn't happen. But I think it becomes incumbent upon us to realize, yes, as men, we need to be good husbands. You know, we, we've, we've chosen this woman. I used to tell my kids when they would try to play their mom against me, you know, well, mom yeah. said, or dad said, and I'd always tell my kids, I go, Hey, look, God just gave me you. Yeah. I chose her. So if I've got, if there's a decision here, you need to think about the fact that I didn't ask for you. God yeah. gave you to me, but I picked this woman. So this is the way it's going down. And they learn pretty quick. Hey, don't play that dad against work. mom. That doesn't um, work. But I think that, and, but also the fatherhood thing, uh, 
kids are not just something we put up with for 18 years and try to get them out of the house. We, yeah. we, we really, there's a payoff for investing in them, seeing them grow up to be young adults that you like, that want to be around you. And then selfishly that when you get old and retire, your kids will take care of you. You know, yeah. that's a, a model that used to be taken for granted without even thinking of. But I think today too many times we see these, and I'm not knocking the situation, so don't get this wrong, but I, the, the commercial, a place for mom. Yeah, I do understand there are situations you've got to do something. But it used to be, hey, you took care of them yourself, you know. Um, my dad, uh, after my mom passed away, my dad moved in with me and then my wife and, and I and our family and stayed with us till he died. And it was a great thing, a great benefit for us to have. The kids loved him. He was a built-in babysitter. That was nice. But I, I do think showing that to your kids, demonstrating that to your kids, impacts them in ways that you will see pay off down the road. Yeah. I think one of the things that's happened, too, is um, things that were created for exceptions um, then kind of turned into the rule. Yeah. So you can go all the way to formula, and it's like, you know, is, is formula a horrible thing? That's not the argument I make. I'm just saying, you know, for a long time, like, they didn't have anything like formula, and it was, you know, breastfeeding, and then you'd have wet nurses, and there's all this whole thing, and then formula came on the scene and it was there for a person who couldn't express, you know, breast milk or right. there was some situation or a transitional yeah, period yeah. to solid so foods. Whatever it was, it, it was there is kind of like this, you know, exception. Well then formula kind of turned into the rule and we're starting to see, well, are there effects of that? How healthy is this really? Is it developmental things or whatever? Daycare, daycare. You know what happens when the factory shuts down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when there's shortages, um, and, you know, you look at daycare, daycare was like a situation where it's like, you know, man, you know, terrible things happen and, you know, tough situation, you, tough situation. Yeah. You got to put your kid in daycare. Now daycare is actually the norm and people look at you like you're crazy. And when the you state's don't stick paying for it. And the state's paying for it. Right. And then that, now they want to pay younger and younger. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it's interesting to watch things that were created to be an exception are now becoming the norm. So um, but overall, I think what we wanted to do uh, in this section is talk a little bit about, you know, the choices that we've made, why we made those decisions and then maybe find those principles. I'm not prescribing my decisions for you. He's not prescribing his yeah. decisions for you. But however, we can talk about the principles because my decisions aren't exactly the same as his. But um, find the principles that govern these decisions and then and hopefully uh, allow you guys to, to maybe have your eyes opened or think differently. Because that's what happened with me is, is I was going along kind of doing what everyone else was doing and met some people in my life that really shook up the way that I look at family and everything else. Uh, and has been able to thus far uh, make a pretty positive difference. So when you were, I don't know how old, but I'll just say back in the day. Um, <laughs> I mean that in the nice before way. cell phones. Yes, before <laughs> cell phones. You know, <laughs> back, 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 back. Um, you started a homeschool umbrella back when homeschooling wasn't cool. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting thing. We, we, uh, of course, our kids, and we were very concerned about their education. Uh, I had nothing against public school. I grew up in a public school environment. You turned out okay. I, I think most people, <laughs> you know, we'll see. Uh, but my wife and I were looking at this going, but we really want a certain type of education. We want to make more of a classical mold of education. And we put them in to start off with my daughter into a private school uh, that we thought was a really good school. And it was but it wasn't really what we were after either. And it's just interesting that one day my wife comes home and goes, Ray, I know neither one of us ever thought of this, but I think we should homeschool. And I said, that's kind of funny you would say that because God's kind of been putting that on my heart as well. There was another couple, very good friends of ours, three kids just like ours, ages matched up, sexes matched up perfectly. And they said, well, let's just do this together because the other lady had been a teacher. So this was going to work. And suddenly all these other parents, hey, we would like to be part of this. We were, So we formed a co-op uh, called Excelsior Homeschool Co-op and started off with the first year, I think we had 27 kids. Uh, by the time that my kids graduated, I think we were 200 and something kids, uh, kindergarten through senior year of high school. Yeah, Still going on today. We're very proud of the fact that done a really good job. But again, our choice, the co-op model was Tuesday, Thursday, you're in classes, we had an awful lot of former teachers who wanted to raise their kids, not be in a classroom five days a week, but the idea of teaching two days a week and then being home with their kids was very appealing to them. Um, we worked out situations with Sanford University that they got student teaching credit for coming to teach Latin because Latin students didn't have a lot of options of teaching, yeah. student teaching. Uh, a lot of just miraculous things happened, but we just decided that it was incumbent upon us to be responsible for how our kids were educated we did do it from a biblical-based, every subject, math, science, whatever it was, we also did from a biblically-based perspective because that's how our family believes and incorporated. And 
Um, it, it turned out to be one of the greatest things ever. We heard a lot of the criticism. Oh, homeschool kids have no social life. In fact, my daughter and all of her friends that did more stuff than I knew all joked and called themselves, oh, yeah, we're the homeschool kids with no social life, as they go off to do some party or some spend the night or some whatever it was. Um, and, again, my daughter got a scholarship to Furman. Son got a full ride to the Citadel. My other son to Union University, good school, got a scholarship. We put kids in Vanderbilt, really came out and did it well. Uh, but that was our choice to say we're responsible for how the kids are educated, and we felt like this this is what God was leading us to do as a family. Now, I know you've gone, you don't homeschool, but you've made your own decisions with your kids. We do some homeschooling, and we do some um, okay. classical Christian. So, And even the homeschooling we do is classical. So as I said, I've got six kids. We're about to have seven. I've got a 12-year-old son, and then um, ages seven, six, four, three, one and a half rug rats. About that that age, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all blending together. Um, but the the six five no seven six four um, are doing homeschool, um, and we're doing classic curriculum as well. And um, you know, uh, our our son went to public schools for a few years. I was very apprehensive <clears throat> to stick him in a public school, but it was a, a rural public school with good teachers and stuff like that. And even with having good Christian teachers in a nice town. And having all of those advantages, um, we still saw, you know, um, some of the things, I mean, what would actually push us over the edge, you know, my son, and I guess it was second grade, um, brings home a drawing of a pot leaf and hands it to us like we're going to put it on the fridge because he doesn't know what it is. He just drew something off of someone else. And you're talking second grade. Yeah. And so it was like a perfectly drawn pot leaf. And he hands it to me like, isn't this great? And I'm like, oh, boy. Um, and so we decided it was the right thing for us. And really, you know, we felt <clears throat> very much as you said, and, th- and the principle is God is not going to hold the public education school right. system for what happens to your children. He puts that on you. And then if you decide to put your kids in public school, private school, homeschool, whatever that decision is, just know that the, that the weight and responsibility of educating and training your children rests on you. Right. Um, and so <laughs> Really, when you feel the weight of that, it was like a mind shift for me when I re- actually realized that because I think what had happened is by default, people just, you know, it's it's like literally like don't try this at home. Leave it to yeah. the professionals. Don't try this at home. You know, um, those those kind of PSA announcements that you see and people started thinking that way with kids is, well, I don't want to mess my kids up. I'm going to send them to the professionals. And um, then it just got to the point where generationally where that was literally the default and parents thought that the only thing they could do is screw their kids up. They just had to make sure the professionals. And so, you know, things about sex education and things like that would come up and parents would be like, well, I don't know. I'll let the school teach him or all these other things. And again, I don't think it was malicious or bad or anything. I think it was just something that kind of got into our minds that something that was never the norm before became the norm. And then we just defaulted to the norm. And now we're starting to sense some of the, um, the consequences of that being the norm and we're not liking the fruit, especially when public schools have been taken captive by uh, what I would call hollow and deceptive mm-hmm. philosophy and teaching things mm-hmm. that are completely contrary to what most of the people in Alabama, um, you know, uh, want their children to be taught. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, the very, very small percentage of parents and students really want that stuff taught two, 3%. And then that, two to 3%, what they want is actually being foisted on the 97%. And it's crazy. And so um, there's no doubt there's incredible teachers in the state of Alabama that are pushing back against that stuff as hard as they possibly can, but it's an onslaught and it's coming. And then you have, you know, basically children from homes that um, don't have the same discipline standards as you and things. And they end up with unruly kids with bad habits. And then they get around your kids who have, you know, then they start to pick up those unruly and some kids are more independent and they can go to public school for 18 years and not be affected by that. Other kids go in and they'll soak up every single bad habit and and cuss word and everything else you know, yeah. that you could possibly imagine. And so it's just different. And 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 for us, um, my, my son goes to Cornerstone Classical uh, Christian Academy in um, Montgomery, and uh, it's it's a wonderful you know faith based classical Christian school. We love it. It's really really good for him. Um, and the younger ones were homeschooling, and you know we may switch it up and we may homeschool him and we may send them to school just. Whatever, but at the end of the day, it's it's really important for us, just as you said, is that the Bible, the gospel, um, the Great Commission, the the cultural mandate, like the things that God commands, is is based in the education. That, that there's not a single subject that they learn that that doesn't have biblical rooting in it. 
Yeah, I think as one of the pastors we had in here one time was saying in the Old Testament, the model is to, to God's law is to talk about it with your family as you walk down the road. You know, yeah. it's supposed to be there. And as you said, I know kids that have come through public school, great kids. Chances are they also had a great family that instilled certain values that helped them understand what those values are. The problem is when too many people go, okay, I'm just turning over to the school and I'm not going to. You know, Jordan Peterson, who I, I'm a big fan of his writing and his lectures, but in, in his first book of 12 Rules for Avoiding Chaos in Your Life, or I've messed up the title of that, but that's roughly what it is. But he's got a chapter in there, and he said something I thought, well, I always believed, but he said it. Uh, don't raise kids that you don't like. If you don't like your kids, it's your fault. Mm. You know, you let them do stuff that you don't like, and now they're used to it, and you don't like it. Well, yeah. You should have stopped that early on. And so I think it's really important for us to remember, I have control over my child. I can raise them to behave, to have an expectation of behavior that I will like them, and they'll like me. <clears throat> and, and in the end, it, it works out better for them, for and everybody. I, and I think what that's one of those mind switches that happened is that for you know the last 20 or 30 years we've somehow fallen into cuz people used to know yeah are are there sometimes you know kids that had just have major difficulties sure that's right there's but overall um children turn out the way that they're raised and that's something that people do not want to hear yeah um you know well we did everything right and we still had and it's like okay well first of all no one's done everything right like i've certainly not done anything right you certainly didn't do everything right and so it's really doing deep introspection for ourselves and realize you know, you, you didn't get a lemon, right? Like you're, you know, you, you didn't get like a bad kid that just came out of the factory. And you're like, Oh, I wish I could return this thing. It's just yeah. a pain in my butt. Um, you know, beginning discipline and correction at a young age and, and teaching them to, you know, the Bible only gives to, and again, everything I'm doing comes from the Bible. Every, I don't know, Carrie, again, this, you guys take whatever principles you want, but, uh, and I think most of Alabama at least gives some credence or, you know, um, you know, um, whatever towards the Bible, yeah. um, belief in it. Um, but the Bible gives children two commands and it's one is found, found in the, the 10 commandments and it's the commandment number five says you're supposed to honor your father honor your father, and mother yeah. and then if so you, that you may live a long life. Yeah. And all the commandments, it's funny. We have this idea that God's commands are these, these horrible, restrictive, terrible things. But every time he gives the law in Deuteronomy six and Exodus and everything else, do these things so it may go well with you in the land that I'm about right. to give you. If yeah. you do this, it's actually going to go well with you. And if you right. don't, it won't. And so it's actually it's like an owner's man. Yeah. And yeah. it's like this loving thing that he's allowing us to do. And we've so mixed up what God's law is in our minds. But anyway, <clears throat> two commands, honor, honor your father and mother. Um, so that it, it's the first commandment with a promise. And, and then in Ephesians six, one, it says children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. So children have two things that they're supposed to do, honor and obey. And it's up to us to make sure that they're obeying that by creating a culture of honor and obedience in your home. And, and that begins with small children with giving them biblical, um, gospel-centered correction of, uh, of this was this was the life hack for me. I'm actually preaching on it this Sunday on Father's Day. Is um, do what you're told when you're told with a happy spirit or a positive attitude. Do what you're told, and if between the ages of zero and five or six, you can get your children trained to do what they're told when they're told with a positive attitude. What you'll find is all of a sudden teenagers that are not the teenagers that we you know you see so much on TV that are not doing what they're told. If they do do it, it's certainly not when. And if, if they do do it, it, they're doing it with a terrible attitude. That fixes so much of it. But it's it's creating a culture of honor and obedience. We, um, I think we so live in the opposite of an honor-shame culture. A lot of, you know, Eastern cultures and where the Bible comes from is an honor-shame culture. But where we do see it is in the military. We see an honor culture in the military. And so if a superior officer walks in, everyone stands up and salutes the superior officer so your body is giving some sort of deference towards this person who's a superior over you. And, you know, in the South, what I love when I came down here, children are forced to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And that's an audible way that trains their brain to say, this person is superior to me. They're not my friend. They're a superior, and I'm supposed to honor them. Mm -hmm. Puritan culture, um, when, it, when a father or mother would walk into the room, the children would stand up and do like a slight bow, basically showing proverbs it says we will rise and call her blessed yeah and my but we, we used to, our kids actually did that for a while whenever yeah. their mom walked in the room they would actually rise and say oh you're blessed yeah. it was it was a cute little thing but it taught the lesson but th yeah. that's the thing and we think that that's weird and i'm just telling you for the last six thousand years all those people are looking at us and like you think we're weird look yeah. at y'all man and look at the yeah. fruit that it's producing and so i would just say that you know 
don't do anything because that's the way that it's done. Figure out for yourself, question norms, look at what's working for other people that's actually working. Look at people who have children bearing the fruit that you would like to see. Start to ask them questions, have conversations. But my biggest thing is question the norms and understand that it's ultimately up to you how your children turn out. And it's up to you to make sure that they're trained and educated. And it, you know, you it, it, at least in our house, it wasn't an oppressive thing. Yeah. Um, I'll give you two examples, but one thing that was kind of funny, I had a radio show in, and, uh, uh, spectrum, uh, charter cable at the time was one of our sponsors. And so I had free charter. They, they put it in as we advertised. And so I got the whole gamut of everything, you know, you could get. Now, I'll never forget my, my son one time complaining to one of his friends, We've got 999 channels, and Dad only lets me watch four. Well, it was really more than four. But yeah. I, the principle was there were all these channels that he wanted to watch, but he knew we couldn't and we didn't. Now, yeah, you just you set boundaries, and, and the kids live with it. That's okay. They, they enjoy what they have. One other tip that we had, and I want to go back to what you were saying, that something we did, maybe people watch, go, hey, we'll do this or not, or that's silly. When the kids were little and they would have these emotional attitudes – my wife, who's just a brilliant woman and really deserves the credit, she started this thing where she'd get a kid. She goes, hey, you got to change that attitude. You need to spin around three times. And she would physically make them rotate three times. At the end of it, they were laughing because yeah. it was so stupid. But their attitude changed. Yep. And even now at 20 years old, sometimes we're like, hey, man, do you need to spin around three times <laughs> and fix that attitude? But you, we made it fun. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of it as we start going, well, you know, Stop crying. Change your attitude. Now, give them an attitude to change too. Yeah. And, and and particularly if you do it younger, when they get older, they understand, oh, the expectation is I need to be in control of my emotions. I can control my attitude. If I have to turn around three times to do it, that's what I will do. Whatever it takes. But, you know, and everybody comes up with their own system. And that's just one I, even it's funny because even to this day, sometimes with my kids, you know, they're 30, 27, 26, but I go, hey, man, man, that attitude, you got a bad attitude. Does mom need to turn you around? And it changes her attitude just like that. That's there are awesome. little things you can do that can be fun and still teach your kids how to control their emotions, how to control their behavior, how to be respectful. Yep. And uh, we'll wrap up our Dr. Phil segment we're doing here. And uh, <laughs> you might need to be on Dr. Yeah. Phil. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but at the end of the day, you know, and I think one other thing that's extremely detrimental, and we'll close with this, is electronic devices. You know, yep. Seeing kids that are eight, nine, 10 years old with phones again, if that's what you do with your kids, that's fine. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, you know, my son's 12. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a phone. None of my kids have phones. Can, yeah. And, and, you know, some of his friends that do have phones, they're just glued to it. They're watching God knows what, you know, and you can try and secure that thing as much as you want. They're in but their again, beds at night. Yeah. Like they're supposed to be in bed, lights yeah. off, but they got their phones on. Yeah. Do, talking to who knows yeah. what. I mean, it's just. It's, it's, it's a weird thing that we didn't have when we were growing up, especially you. No, uh, no offense. <laughs> You're right. But, uh, you know, it, it's just it's different. And so it's just things that we need to be vigilant about that there's not a training manual. So a lot of the things in parenting, we really do need to go back 100 years and figure out what they were doing uh, and worked. But we also have these unique things like, you know, electronic devices and stuff and, you know, hours upon hours of video games and all this other stuff. But it's not just electronic devices in the kids' hands. It's also the parents because yeah. the parents will get trapped. I'm guilty. And of I'm it. bad at that. Too. Yeah, I right. get locked into Facebook and I'm, you know, in a scroll lock. Uh, and my kids are like, Daddy, you know, let's go play. Or, Daddy, will you dance with me? And I'm just like, oh, as soon as I'm done scrolling. Yeah. You know. Um, I've got and, this text message. I've yeah, got to stop got and it. respond to it. Yeah. My wife's like puts her hand over my phone. Yeah. Said, nope, not doing that there. Yeah. yeah. So And, and you know, that, that's a. I think that's a great point. We limited how much. You know, they could watch this much of TV. They could choose sometimes when they wanted to do it, but there were limits to it. Otherwise, it was go outside and play. Just get outside and play. Yeah. Oh, I don't want – there's nothing figured out. Yeah. And the kids do. Yeah. Uh, but it was funny because – and this is sort of a knock on on the church we're going to. The youth group that said, hey, everybody give me your cell phone. We're going to text you our schedule. And my daughter, who's the oldest, had to go, I don't have a cell phone. Yeah. And they're like, you don't have a cell phone? It's Parents won't give me one. You know, yeah. when they went to college, we gave them cell phones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we're in a culture we're so used to that, and so it's a little bit out of the norm not to do that. My youngest son went to college. Actually, we gave him an old flip phone, and his fraternity brothers called him Jitterbug after that commercial for old yeah. people's phones. So that was his nickname was Jitterbug. But 
They survived. Yeah. They didn't have to have phones in high school. I understand the concern to stay in touch, but again, you brought my, you know, we didn't have we didn't like have that. phones. You know, yeah. uh, my mom went to work in the morning. I knew she'd be home at five thirty. I had to be home by five thirty. But after school to five thirty, she didn't know what I was doing. There was no way to check you know, into it. My dad literally just told me that exact same story. And he's, he's <laughs> I think, 68 right now. So yeah, well, you guys had that same. Yeah. <laughs> we're, probably, we're probably hanging out together. Yeah. So, I mean, school gets out at 3 o'clock from 3 yeah. to 5.30. I mean, I was one of those original latchkey kids. Yeah. Go home, put my books. Boom, I'm playing ball. Or I'm in the woods. Or I'm riding my bike. Or I'm something. Yeah. But I knew, oh, my gosh, my mom. if I'm not home at 5.30, my mom will yeah, it's there will be, be punishment. Bad. Yeah, it's gonna be bad, and uh, and it worked, you know. And yeah, it's scary. You drive, go somewhere, and you, there wasn't that constant check in. Thousands of years, that's the way it was. So yeah. uh, it can be done. Yeah. Um, I promised I was gonna end there, so I'm gonna end there. Uh, okay, I, I, I could keep going. It's a lot of advice, you know, yeah. stuff. But I also think this conversation with us, you between you and I, yeah, different ways of handling kids. People hopefully are thinking. Well, that doesn't work, but it made me think of something else. Or, That's hey, it. here's something else that I might need to think about. Yeah, we're not trying to prescribe a certain way. My biggest thing that I would encourage anybody listening is question the norms, whatever you're doing. So if you do give your kid a cell phone and you have every right to, that's up to you. Just question. Be like, is this really the best thing? You know, if you're sending your kids to public school, just question, is this really the best thing? And it could, and the answer can be yes, but you need to make those decisions for yourself and just make sure that you've, you've, you've made a cognizant decision and it wasn't a default decision, yeah. right? Yeah. And don't be afraid to put limits on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kids got a cell phone. I get that. But maybe it's, hey, you only get it for this time. Or when you go to bed, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever it is, the phone comes into, you know, in the kitchen and it goes into a drawer until the morning or, or whatever. Uh, yep. Everybody can make their own rules. But the thing is to be engaged, to think about it, to be active in your child's life. That's it. All right, guys. Well, that'll wrap up uh, today's episode. Uh, again, uh, make sure you're subscribed to 1819news.com. Uh, subscribed at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, leaving reviews, hitting the bell, all that stuff. Uh, until next time, put your trust in God. Keep your powder dry. <laughs>